You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. If you would, get your Bibles out and turn to Romans chapter 8. Reads, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However... You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we're under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then? Shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? 
God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Why don't you take a minute to pray that with me? <clears throat> Father, we are grateful that the Bible is living words. And we're thankful that through your spirit, you can take the words of scripture and you can send those like arrows into our souls. To convince, to convince us of your love for us, to convict us of sin, to humble us, to encourage and comfort us. And so, Lord, would you do your good work in us today? Would you take your word and would you personally apply it to our souls in the ways that we, in just really particular ways across this room, need that to happen? And, Father, we are grateful for... Romans chapter 8. We're grateful for the promises you make to us in it. We're grateful for the way that you encourage us through it. And Lord, I pray that as we think and work through this particular chapter together, that you would produce fruit. Lord, that you would bless this church family. And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. So if you want to grab your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8, that would probably be helpful for you. And before we get there, though, we're, going to, we're starting a set of sermons through Romans 8 today. Before we get there, I want to go back to last week just for a moment and revisit Celebration Sunday and just some of what we celebrated and thanked the Lord for last week. So I want to just make sure you're in the know on what happened last week. So last week, we celebrated both stories of just the, the, work, you know, the work that the Lord has been up to around here. It's been good work that the Lord's doing um, among our church family. So we celebrated both stories and we celebrated numbers last week. And we said last week that the reason numbers are important is because numbers represent names and names have stories. And that's what we're about. We're about the Lord impacting through this church family names that would create then stories of God's good redemptive work in our lives. And so there were four numbers that we celebrated last week, and I just want to make sure that you're in the know on these numbers and that you've got um, a good picture of what the Lord has been up to through All In over the last several months. So the first thing we celebrated was commitment cards, the number of people who turned in commitment cards. And last week, we had 331 people. That was our total number of commitment cards. That's representative of families and or singles who have all said over the next two years, this is what generosity is going to look like um, for me. And that is something to celebrate. We actually had another 10 more, so we're now at 341. But that's something to celebrate. That's 341 now people, families, that the Lord is going to be at work in through generosity over the next two years. The second thing we celebrated last week was the percentage of participation. So out of our covenant members, how many or what percentage are participating in All In? And this virtually never happens. You virtually never get a number like this. We have 81% of our people participating. And so that is something to really celebrate. That's the Lord's goodness among us. And that leaves room for, if, you're, if you haven't stepped into that yet, man, we would love to have you participate in this um, all-in season. And then thirdly, we celebrated first-time givers. And we had, out of the 330 commitment cards, we had 71 first-time givers. So they're giving the first time either to the Lord or to the Lord through Stonegate. 71 people that are beginning that sort of a journey with the Lord. And then fourthly, we celebrated the total kind of collective commitment number. And, uh, you know, just to clarify, it was not 1.3 million, if you were there last week. It was $11.13 million, which is crazy, crazy. 
you know, we, uh, we had set the goal of, of $6 million is what we were asking the Lord for, you know, for. And the Lord just did something among our church family that is very, very unique. You know, as I was thinking about that last week, um, one of the things I'm just so grateful to the Lord for is that you and us as a church family got to experience a miracle that very few, few church families get to experience. Most church families don't get to flip over a number like that, but we got to flip over a number like that. Over $11 million um, have been committed over the next two years. It's just, that is a miracle of God that that happens, an absolute miracle of God. Now, I want to just apologize for sucking the air out of the room in uh, the quasi trick on you, but it was the only way I knew to like protect, it's gonna be an eight digit number, not a seven digit number. So I apologize for giving you a heart attack on that. It was so funny listening to people's reaction. You know, one person was like, man, I couldn't celebrate that. We need to like collective repentance over that number. And I'm like, man, the air just got totally sucked out of the room and it lingered for like 30 seconds. And then we had the moment of 11, over $11 million. So just such a fun day for our church family. And I hope that when you think about us not having a seven-digit number, but an eight-digit number, I hope that we as a church family can feel both the affirmation of God, that God's looking at us saying yes to your vision and values, yes to you making disciples, yes to you seeing people meet Jesus, yes to you helping people grow up in Jesus, yes to you equipping men to be good pastors of their home, yes to you pressing on ladies to be good you know, representation of the church responding to the initiating love of Jesus. Yes to your goals for racial reconciliation. Yes for your goals of church planning. Yes for your goals for orphan care. Yes to all of those things. I hope that we can all feel a deep sense of affirmation from the Lord for that. And at the same time, I hope we can feel the Lord saying, now let's get about that work. I, I'm giving you what you need. Now let's get about actually doing that and bringing good fruit with our church family. So I hope we can feel in a really deep way both of those two things, both the affirmation of God and that nudge and challenge um, you know, from God to get about the work that we've set out to do. And the last thing I wanted to celebrate with you this morning is, um, you know, last week we were praying for the biggest offering we've ever had as a church family as we just kick-started all in. So I wanted to give you what that number was from our offering last week. And that number was 1,324,000 $592 last week. <clears throat> so we are off and rolling. And so we are looking forward to what the Lord has for, for us, this church family, over the next two years. So Romans chapter 8 is where we are. So let me start by asking and then answering the question, why Romans 8? Why would we spend the next 11, 12, 13 weeks together working through this chapter of the Bible? And let me give just three answers to that. We could talk about this all day long, but let me just give you three reasons for why Romans chapter eight. Number one, Romans has literally changed the world. It is, it, it is stunning to consider the influence that the epistle to the Romans has had on the world, just as a sampling of that. Um, you know, if you take the first 400 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who is, you know, likely the most influential church figure of those next 400 years is a guy named Augustine. And, uh, you know, for the first 32 years of his life, he was just enslaved to sin. He, he just could not say no to sin, in particular, sexual sin. And so he just lived his life as a slave to these things, but his mother never stopped praying for him. So if you've got a kiddo that is rebelling right now, just take the prayer of Augustine's mom as encouragement to you. She never stopped praying. And at the age of 32 just enslaved in sin, he found himself in Milan and he stumbled into a place and listened to a pastor or a bishop there preach. His name was Ambrose. And he listened to a sermon by Bishop Ambrose and he was just cut to the core. It rattled his cage. And in response to that, he left that, that building and then he went out to this garden. And this is how he describes what happened in the garden. He said, in that garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged, I was twisting and turning in my chains. He said, I threw myself down somewhere under a certain fig tree and, and let myself or let tears flow freely. So he's just having this moment. He's experiencing conviction and the Lord is moving in his life. And then out of nowhere in this garden, he hears this voice say, pick up and read. When he thinks back about it, he thinks it was probably the voice of a young person somewhere around the garden saying, pick up and read, pick up and read. And he just interpreted that moment as the voice of the Lord telling him to take his Bible and to read it. 
So he goes back and finds his Bible and he opens it up and he does the whole, I'm just going to let the wind blow the pages where it will. I'm going to put my finger down and start reading. And as the wind blew and as he put his finger down, he puts his finger down on Romans 13 verse 13 that says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Just a, it couldn't have been a more tailored verse to Augustine. It goes on in verse 13, but, or verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And in that moment, in that garden, reading Romans 13, Augustine was saved. Then you, you kind of keep going um, down the road. Martin Luther, um, another very influential person in, in church history, he was rescued by thinking through Romans, by thinking through what does it mean to have the righteousness of Christ? How is that possible? And he comes to this conclusion, it's only by faith, and the Lord saves him working through Romans. He goes on to, to you know, spark the Protestant Reformation, of which you are a recipient today. You keep going in church history. Um, John Wesley, who was kind of the founder of the whole Methodist movement, he was saved as he was listening to a person read Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. He wrote a commentary on it, had a preface. He's listening to a guy read that preface, and bam, the Holy Spirit saves him. Now, those are just some of the highlights. We could keep going forever about that. Just think of the countless men and women saved over the years, you know, who have met Jesus over the Romans' road. Just, you know, real clear articulation of the gospel through certain passages in Romans. There's just been millions of people who have met Jesus in the book of Romans. I, I love what one commentator goes on to say about it. He said, indeed, there's no saying what may happen when people begin to study the letter of Romans. And I'm encouraged just to, to hear about what's going to happen in you and me as we break this book open together and think it through. So reason number one, Romans has literally changed the world. Reason number two is Romans is the whole Bible in one book. So I want you to just consider a hypothetical scenario. Someone comes up to you and says, hey, you can't take the whole Bible with you. You're gonna have to cut out all the other books. You can just take one book of the Bible with you. Which one are you gonna take? And just create that sort of a hypothetical scenario. So you start combing through the Bible and you're looking for that book in the Bible that sort of contains the whole Bible inside of that book. If you're ever in that scenario, you need to look no further than the epistle to the Romans. It is the book of the Bible that contains the whole of the Bible in 16 chapters of the Bible. I love what Martin Luther said about it. He called Romans the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. Calvin, he went on to say, if we gained a true understanding of the epistle to the Romans, we have an open door then to all the treasure of Scripture. I mean, it, it is that book in the Bible that contains the whole Bible in it. Now, to press that analogy, that hypothetical scenario, one more step, imagine them now coming back to you and saying, you can't take a whole book of the Bible with you. You can just take one chapter of the Bible with you. What, what is the one chapter you're going to take? So now you're combing through the Bible for the one chapter that's going to be your condensed summary of everything you would need to kind of move forward in, in your life with the Lord. And if that scenario is ever presented to you, all you need to think is, Romans chapter 8. It's the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the Bible. That's Romans chapter 8, the greatest chapter of the greatest book. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, he was a Welsh preacher, probably the best preacher of the last century. He said this about um, Romans and Romans chapter 8. He said, Romans is one of the brightest gems of all. Someone has said that in the whole of the scriptures, the brightest and the most lustrous and flashing stone or collection of stones is the epistle to the Romans. And of these stones, chapter 8 is the brightest gem in the cluster. The most moving chapter in Romans is, is this chapter 8. And that is the gem that we are going to get to unpack together and to think through together. Thirdly, why are we working through Romans chapter 8 together? Third reason is Romans chapter 8 shows us the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 shows us the Spirit. Um, several years ago, a guy wrote a book on the Holy Spirit, and here's the name, the title that he gave the book that he wrote on the Holy Spirit. He called the book The Forgotten God. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think a lot of churches, a lot of Christians, a lot of people have a way of just strangely neglecting the Holy Spirit. 
But Paul does not neglect the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. This is one of the things I love about this chapter. In Romans chapter 1 through 7, so the first seven chapters of Romans, the Holy Spirit shows up five times in the first seven chapters. In the last eight chapters, Romans 9 through 16, the Holy Spirit shows up eight times. But then you get to Romans 8 and the Holy Spirit just explodes onto the scene and shows up 21, chap- or 21 times in this one chapter. In Romans chapter 8, it's, the Holy Spirit's everywhere. You, you see him everywhere throughout the chapter. 21 times you see his name mentioned. It's one of the central themes in, in um, Romans chapter 8. This is why if you have an ESV, if, that, that, if you have that version of the Bible, if you look right above Romans chapter 8, here's the title it's going to give for Romans chapter 8. It's going to call it Life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. So it's going to be a helpful view of us for seeing what, what is the Holy Spirit's role? What, 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 why has the Lord given us the Holy Spirit? And here's what we're going to learn in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is going to show us that God's provision for weak, failing, and falling, and struggling Christians, God's provision for you and me is the indwelling Holy Spirit. You know, when, when most people think about how, how does a person change, most people think the way you change is you just muster up some new willpower. You just kind of get a little more self-discipline and you just kind of make it happen. You just kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you just kind of make the change happen in your life. That is not the way for change in the Bible. That, that does not change a person on deep, kind of in those deep, most fundamental sort of ways. The way for change in the Bible is the Holy Spirit taking the accomplished work of Jesus and all the promises that come because of the work of Jesus. The Holy Spirit takes those promises and presses those promises into the deepest places of our souls. That is how a human being changes. There is no way other than that to change in the deepest, profoundest sense of what the word change means. That that is how it happens. And and that right there, taking the promises of the gospel and pressing them into our souls, that is the job description of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He reminds us of Jesus. He shows us Jesus. He convinces us in a very real and tangible way of the promises of Jesus. That is what the Holy Spirit does. Now, here's the great news about Romans 8. Not only do we have the Holy Spirit highlighted in this, but we also have plenty of promises in Romans chapter 8 for the Spirit to work with in our lives. I mean, Romans chapter 8 is chock full of promises. If you want a picture of Romans chapter 8, here's the picture. Think of yourself going into a bank. You're invited into the bank, and all of a sudden, the person that owns the bank says, hey, I'm going to open up the vault, and you're going to come into the vault with me. I mean, this is where the gold is. This is where all of the money is. This is where the treasure is. And and, and he opens up the vault, and you walk into the vault. This is what God is doing in Romans chapter 8. He's opening the vault for us, and he is letting us work through and see all of the golden-plated promises in Romans chapter 8. He's saying, come in and enjoy. I want you to know all that you have and all that you are in Jesus. I want you to know all of the promises that I make for you. I want you to know all of these things. So come in and enjoy them. That's what God's saying in Romans chapter 8. He's opening the vault and saying, please, come in and enjoy yourself here. Come in and let these promises comfort you. So as we start this set of sermons, I want to say this just as clearly as I can. Here is my hope for us as we unpack and kind of work through Romans chapter eight, my hope is that we would do more than pull out promises from the Bible and look at them and analyze them and think about them and kind of mentally kind of get them. We would do more than that. My hope is that as we work through Romans chapter eight, the Holy Spirit might actually help us experience them. That they would be pressed into the deepest parts of our soul. They would go from being abstract, theoretical sort of things that the Lord says to us to being things that have actually begun to change us in the deepest parts of our souls. So with that in mind, we are starting with the first two verses of Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Got a two-point sermon. Point number one, the promise. Point number two, the people. So point number one is the promise. We're gonna clarify what is it that the Lord promises to us in Romans chapter eight, verse one. And then who are the people who this promise is applied to? 
So first, the promise, the promise. Simply put, the promise is the Lord looking at you and I and saying, there is no condemnation for you. Condemnation is gone. It no longer remains. When I think about this particular promise of Romans 8.1, here's the metaphor I think of. I think of a person getting a shovel and he's going to dig a hole in his backyard. So he starts digging, he's digging, he's digging, and all of a sudden his shovel collides into something that is just, I mean, it's so hard the shovel just cannot penetrate, it cannot break it up. And all of a sudden as he dusts off what's below the surface, he realizes there is a priceless diamond in his backyard. It's in his backyard. And, and he picks up the diamond, and that diamond is staring back into his face. That, that's Romans 8.1. The Lord is saying, here is a priceless diamond for you, and it's yours. Here's a precious promise to you, and it's yours. You can bank your life on this. You can live in light of this. This great promise, this priceless promise, it is yours. Romans 8.1 is a precious promise. But for us to get a sense of and see why it's precious, how precious it is, for us to really feel that deep in our bones, we have to go back to Romans chapter 7, and we have to see the purpose of the law. The law is what makes this particular promise so precious. So let's go back to Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, here is Paul's big point. He starts off in the first several verses by trying to drive home this point, if you are in Christ, you are no longer under the law. You're no longer under the law. So if you're in Christ, you don't have to work and try to live up to the law by your behavior. You don't have to try to achieve your righteousness by all of these vain attempts at law keeping. You, you don't have to do that. You're, you're no longer under the law. It's, it's no longer for you going to be a, a righteousness achieved. You no longer have to work for it. You no longer have to try to live up to some sort of standard because Christ has now given you righteousness. He's saying it's, it's no longer. This is the good news about being in Jesus. It's not righteousness achieved, you trying to work for it. It's righteousness received. It's Jesus living perfectly in your place and then him giving you his perfect record of righteousness. Now, after unpacking that and saying you're no longer under the law, no longer are you having to try to achieve your righteousness, Paul then anticipates the question that his partly Jewish audience is going to ask. And here's the question he anticipates. So, Paul, are you saying the law is worthless, that it's bad, that it's not a good thing? Is that what you mean by this, Paul? Paul responds back in verse 7. No, that's not what I mean. The law is not a bad thing. He says the law is a good thing. As long as you use the law correctly, it is a wonderful, great thing. This is Paul's point in Romans 7. And, and here's what Paul goes on to say. It's a great thing when you use it correctly. And here's the correct use of the law. The law functions like a mirror in our life. And when we stand in front of the mirror of the law, it shows us what we really are, or maybe more precisely, what we aren't, and what we really need, namely Jesus. The law functions like a mirror. It shows us that, who we are and what we really need. And then he, he shows us how it functions like the mirror. And here's what he tells us. In verse 7, he says, the law exposes our sin. That it, that it makes it undeniable that we are sinners in the court of God. So this is what he says in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? That the law is bad? By no means. Yet if, yet if it had not been for the law, listen to what he says. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would, have known, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now what is Paul saying in verse 7? Paul is not saying that, that before he knew the law, he did not have sin in his life. That's not the point he's making. So he's not saying before the law, there is no sin. He is saying before we know the law, before we hear the law, the law before we hear the law pronounced over our life, he is saying we are blind to sin. So he's not saying there is no sin apart from the law. He's saying we are blind to sin when we don't know the law. He's saying that the law has this way of clarifying the wrong and the sin in us. This is Paul's point. So he says here, he's using the 10th commandment, do not covet. He's saying before I heard the 10th commandment, I didn't know I was coveting. I didn't even know coveting existed in my heart. But then I heard the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And then I'm realizing all I'm doing every minute of every day is coveting. I never stop coveting. 
Do you see what he's saying? He's saying when he heard the law, it revealed, it exposed that sin ran deep in him. Now, the 10th commandment in particular, it's interesting that Paul uses that as his illustration for this. Because the 10th commandment shows us just how far the law of God goes in our life. Just how impossible it is to measure up to the perfect standard of righteousness that is the law. The 10th commandment shows us, you shall not covet. It shows us that God isn't just concerned with our external actions, but he is also concerned with our internal motivations, our internal affections. And coveting, you know, is a perfect illustration of this. Coveting reveals, you know, it, it, it can show itself in a range of deeds, right? So you can covet by doing a lot of things. But at the core of coveting is not deeds. At the core of coveting is desire. We are desiring things that are just not Jesus. We're clinging to things that aren't Jesus. We're wanting things more than Jesus. We're wanting things so much that we don't have contentment in Jesus. That's what coveting is. It's mainly a desire, a motivation, a, a, a deep in our heart inclination issue. That, that's coveting. And part of what the Ten Commandments do for us, part of what the law of God does for us is show us that God isn't just concerned with your external actions. He's not just concerned with what you do. God actually sees past what you do all the way into the motives of your heart and what you desire. Isn't that terrifying to know that? God sees all the way past your doing, all the way down into your desiring, all the way down into why you're doing what you're doing. He sees all the way down into that. And what the law shows us, the law clarifies for us that any doing that is not perfectly motivated by love and faith in Jesus, all of that fits under the category of sin. Now, do you, have a, do you have a concept for that, a category for that? You just did a great deed to somebody, but because the motive was not out of love of Jesus and faith in Jesus, that the law would call that good deed that you did actually sin against God. See, this is what the law is clarifying. This is why Isaiah um, says in Isaiah 64 that even our best deeds are like filthy rags in the nostrils of God. Because even our best deeds are motivated by all of these crazy motives and desires and inclinations deep down in us. One of my favorite pastors said it this way. He says, do you want to know what my doctrine of sin is? Here's my doctrine of sin. I need to repent of even my best works because even my best works have impure motives in them. And when our best works, our besties have impure motives in them, in the Bible, that is all under the category of sin. See, this is why in Romans 8, 8, it says, if you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. It doesn't matter how good your external life looks, it is not pleasing to God unless it is motivated by a love of God and a faith in God. Oh, the law clarifies, anything that's not that, anything motivated from weird things, any mixture of motives in you, it's all sin in the Bible. See, this is what the law does. It exposes the depth of sin in you and me. It exposes how high God's perfect standard of righteousness is. It shows us that there is no way any of us are ever going to achieve perfect standing with God based on our performance for God. The law clarifies that. It exposes the depths of sin in us. But Paul goes on. He says, it doesn't just function like a mirror and that exposes sin in us. It also provokes sin in us. Look at verse eight. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. You see what he said? He said, the commandment was producing sin in me. When I heard the commandment, it actually made me want to sin. And we all know the feeling of this, right? How, how commandments provoke sin in us. If somebody were to come to you and they put a big red button on the wall and they said, hey, you see that big red button? Whatever you do, don't touch the big red button. I will kill you if you touch the big red button. Whatever you do, that big red button better not be pushed. What do all of us want to do in the room? We want to push the big red button, don't we? See, this is what Paul's saying, that, that when we hear a commandment, when we hear God say, don't do that. Whatever you do, don't do that. The natural inclination of our fallen heart says to God, you know what I want to do now? I want to do that. That's exactly what I want to do. I'm going to go do that. See, if you want the picture of like what sin in our heart looks like, think of the picture of a sleeping dog. 
It's, it's sleeping over there. Everything's good to go. It's just, it just at rest over there until the whip of the law strikes. And as soon as that dog hears and feels the whip of the law, of the, the law it's now up and just romping and roaring everywhere. Paul's saying that's what the law does. It wakes up sin in us and arouses sin in us. It provokes sin in us. Now, if you want a good picture of this, Augustine gives us one. He was 16 years old. And uh, at the age of 16, he was running with a really rough crowd. And it was late one night. And he decided, I'm gonna walk onto that guy's property. I'm gonna trespass on his property. And not only that, I'm gonna shake his pear tree and I'm going to steal a lot of his pears. So he shakes the tree, he steals a lot of the pears. And ironically, when he leaves, he throws them to the pigs. He didn't even want them. He, he had actually better pears at his house. And th this moment stuck with him forever because it showed him something about the depth of his motives and the depth of the evil that's in him. And, and this is how he commented on it in his book, uh, Confessions. He said, I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and of doing what was wrong. J just pushing the red button. I didn't care what the red button did. I just wanted to push the red button because somebody told me not to push the red button. Now, do you know that that's in you? See, the law, part of what the law is meant to do is show you that heart is in you that is just provoked by God when God says, don't do it. He goes on to talk about this. He, he goes on and it led him to ask this question. Is it possible to take pleasure in what was wrong for no reason other than it was not allowed? And Paul's answer is yes. Welcome to the depravity of the human heart. Yes to that. It is possible for our hearts when we hear a commandment to not even care about what we would be getting if we break the law. We just wanna break the law for the sake and thrill of breaking the law. See, this is part of what the, the law does for us. It exposes our sin. It provokes our sin. It the law makes it impossible for you and I to stand in front of it when we're in front of the mirror of the law. It makes it impossible for you and I to stand in front of it and to beat our chest thinking, you know what, we're really pretty good people. It makes it impossible to do that. It exposes our sin. It provokes our sin. It shows us the depth of evil in our heart. And thirdly, Paul says, the law condemns our sin. And even more frightening, the sinner. The law condemns both our sin and the sinner. Look at verse seven, or look at verse nine in chapter seven. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. When the commandment came, it exposed sin in me. It brought sin to life. It provoked sin in me. And then here was the full fruit of the law. And after it exposed it, after it, after it provoked sin, and I died. Now that is the full fruit of the law. It doesn't just expose sin. It doesn't just provoke sin. It does those things. It shows us who we really are. And it shows us what is eventually going to happen to us. That when we're measured up to the law, here is the law's verdict on our life. We are condemned, guilty sinners, sentenced to death. That is the condemnation that the law brings. I want you to use your imagination for a moment with me. Can you picture being in a courtroom? And this time you're not in the crowd in the courtroom. You're not watching it on a TV screen. You are the one who the charges have been brought against. You're at your little table there, and all of a sudden, the prosecuting attorney brings out his case against you. He lays out one wrongdoing after another, one evil after another, one breaking of the law after another. It is an airtight case. You are caught red-handed. There is nothing you can say to it. You know, you're red, you, know, you, you know you're guilty. Everyone knows you're guilty. He brings out his case. It's airtight. He makes his case against you, condemning you with the law. Then he throws that case to the judge. The judge takes a moment to deliberate. He goes back into his chambers to deliberate. And he's thinking. And you, the defendant, you're, you're or, you know, you, the one the charges brought against you, you're sitting there, just your heart's pounding out of your chest. You know that whatever he is about to say is about to change your life one way or the other. 
It, it all rides. Your life is literally in the balance of this deliberating judge. I, I, when, anytime I see that scene go down on a, you know, in a movie, on TV, I'm always mesmerized by it. I always want to put myself into the shoes of that person and just try to feel what they're feeling. Their life is literally in the balance of this decision. All of a sudden, the judge comes out, and it's like the longest 10 seconds of your life as he's putting on his glasses and he clears his throat, and then you hear this judge speak. The defendant, fill in your name, is found guilty. Can you imagine that moment? You know this sin could cost you your life. He's found guilty. Like a sledgehammer just smashing through your soul, it lands on you. I'm in big trouble here. And then about that time, you hear the judge say the next sentence. This guilty man, this defendant who is guilty of this crime is sentenced to death. I mean, if you picture yourself in that moment, it is as if the oxygen just got sucked out of your lungs as it's just settling on you. There's no way this could be real. There's no way this could be happening. There's no way that I'm actually about to die for this. The purpose of the law is to put us in that chair to help us feel that feeling. That there, this is Paul's point in Romans 7. There is a day coming where that courtroom scene is going to be all of ours. There is a moment coming where we're gonna be the one, God the judge comes out, the gavel is slammed, and we hear the words out of God himself when he says, that defendant, do you see him right there? He is guilty. And that defendant is now sentenced to death, eternal ruin. Paul's saying that the purpose of the law is to, to wake us up to that moment. It's gonna, it's gonna happen for every human being. That there is going to be a moment where all of us come to grips with when compared to the law, everyone, the whole lot of us humans, we're all found wanting. That we're all condemned by the law. We're sentenced to death by the law. This is what Paul's trying to convince us of. He's trying to help us feel that in Romans 7. That there's no way you can measure up. Here is the end verdict that the law is going to pronounce over your life. Guilty. Sentenced to death. Then you get to Romans 8. And it's upon that dark canvas, that dark background, that the precious promise of Romans 8, 1 shines like the sun. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, Romans 7, it announces all those who are banking on your good behavior, the law is going to slay you. I mean, it's going to slaughter you. It's going to crush you. It's going to crucify you. For all who are banking on their good behavior to earn them, to achieve for them righteousness and good standing toward God, it's a hopeless endeavor. It will crush and crucify you. And then Romans 8 announces, but for all of those who will stop, who will humble themselves and stop banking on your behavior, and rather than that, will start banking on the behavior of Jesus, his perfect record of righteousness, this will be pronounced over you. Not condemnation in a sentence of death, but commendation. There will not be any condemnation left for you. You're going to live in the forever favor of God for all eternity. Romans 8 announces that for all those who are banking on the perfect record of righteousness, we're going to hear from God from now for all eternity. You are approved. You are loved by me. I accept you. Just, just right there, just like you are. I in all of your sin and misery, I accept you right there where you are. Romans 8 announces that for all of those who are banking on the perfect life of Jesus, not your own life, but the perfect life of Jesus, you will enjoy the smile of God for all eternity. For all those who are banking on the perfect life of Jesus, not your own behavior, but the perfect life of Jesus, Romans 8 is announcing to you, God is now 100% and always for you. That's Romans 8.1. That's what it's announcing to us. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time trying to apply this. Trying to apply this. Let me just do this in a couple of, of ways here. Martin Luther, or, uh, 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, in his commentary on Romans chapter 8, I want you to see what he says and think about what he says about Romans 8.1. He says, most of our troubles, so think about your troubles, most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. Most of your troubles in life, most of my troubles in life are due to our failure to realize that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me just kind of unpack this in a couple of ways. Apply that to what I'll just call like the drivers in your life. See, if you picture all of our lives like a car, if you lift up the hood of our life, you're gonna see an engine inside of of that car, inside of your life. And that engine is animating and moving your life and and pushing your life and, and making your life go. We all have that engine. And one of the most important things you can know about you is what that engine is. What is driving you? What is animating you? I was talking to a counselor here recently, and uh, he was talking about a guy that he had been counseling. The guy's in his 40s. And uh, th- this guy, when he was growing up, he was one of two boys. So, you know, two brothers in a house. And his mom would consistently praise the, the other brother. But this man who, who was in counseling, you're going to see why he's in counseling in a second. For, for this other man, the, the mom would always say something like, and it's just going to be a miracle if he doesn't, you know, end up in prison one day. So praising this brother and just slaughtering this brother, praising this one, and man, if we can just keep him out of prison, that's gonna be a real win for this loser. I mean, basically, that's the sentiment that he's, that he's feeling from his mom. It's just that condemning voice of his mom. Now, listen to the tragedy of this, though. This man is in his 40s, and ironically, the brother that was praised a lot has really struggled in life. The brother that should have ended up in prison, according to his mom, is now like a high-powered VP type of a guy. And ironically, 30 years later, he is coming to grips with all of his desire for accomplishment, all of his career advancement, all these things he has accomplished and done in his life have all been to prove the voice of his mom wrong. Now, this is just so important that you kind of get a sense of this. This man was trying to gain horizontally in what he does and what he is doing, what can only be had vertically in the doing of Jesus. He was trying to gain horizontally. So all of these things he was doing, he was accomplishing, he was doing all of these things, but it was all an attempt to to gain a horizontal voice that would say to him, you're really okay. I really don't think you're an idiot. I really kind of like you. I love, he was spending his life trying to hear that statement. But he was trying to get it horizontally, not vertically. And anytime we're trying to get it horizontally, those are just surface rumblings of the deep ache inside of our soul to hear it from God. Now think about your life for a second. What is driving you? Your parenting, your your work, your accomplishments, the the way you interact with friends, your words. What is driving you? It's one of the most important things you can know about you. And here is what Romans 8 is announcing to us. You don't have to live for horizontal approval because God is giving all of that to you in Jesus. Jesus. And it's not until you receive that from Jesus into the deepest places of your soul that you'll actually turn off all of these attempts to gain it horizontally. Romans 8.1 is the only cure for these drivers in our life that are just literally, for many of us in the room right now, driving us straight into the dust. Romans 8.1 is the good news that you don't have to live that way. That the Lord has pronounced over you what you are so desiring from someone in your life or something in your life. Let's take a moment to apply it to sin in our life. How does, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How does that relate to us sinning in big ways in our life? See, it's one thing to be able to quote Romans 8.1. It's a one thing to be able to think about it kind of theoretically and abstractly. But it's another thing to actually believe it. And if you wanna know if you really believe Romans 8.1, you need to wait until you sin in a shocking way and see what you do. See, Romans 8.1 is written on the hills of Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul is looking at himself in light of the law and just looking at his own sinful heart. And he's saying, man, the good I want to do, I just have such a hard time doing. What's wrong with me? And the bad that I don't want to do, I continually do it. I mean, he gets to the point in Romans 7 where he just throws up his hands in frustration. Like, what is wrong with me? What is going on inside of me? What is happening in me? See, it's written on the hills of that. And by the way, who in this room hasn't had that moment when you're looking at your life and you're just looking at 
how big of a moron we can be. Isn't it shocking at times? Like, we can really do that? What, what is wrong? It's shocking at times, isn't it? I mean, we can be the biggest idiots on the planet. And I'm not saying that about you. I'm saying that about me. I can be the biggest idiot on the planet. I, there, there are moments when I'm looking at my heart and my actions thinking, what are you doing? I mean, that, that's surprising even to me that you're doing that, thinking that. I mean, it just, it can shock us at times. Now, when you have those sort of shocking run-ins with sin, that is going to be the moment in how you respond to that sin that you're going to know, do I believe Romans 8.1 or not? Do I really believe it? Y yes or no? See, here's the way most of us deal with, with sin in our life. If you look up on the screen, in this circle is no condemnation. So if we're in that circle, we've got no condemnation. But if we're outside of that circle, then we definitely feel condemnation from the Lord. And here's how most of us practically live. Most of us live as if our behavior moves us inside that circle. So when it's good, man, we're feeling great. God loves us. He approves us. Man, it's, just, it's awesome. But then when we behave badly, we, we kind of sin our way outside of the circle. This is how most of us live. So when we sin really badly, man, we feel the condemnation from the Lord. It's as if God has abandoned us. He probably hates us right now. I mean, this is how we feel about our lives. But think about what Romans 8.1 is saying. Romans 8.1 is not just saying there's, there's, you know, you're not under condemnation anymore. That's not, it is saying that, but it's saying more than that. It's not just saying that. It's actually saying there's actually no condemnation left for you. See, all the condemnation that God has over your sin and my sin, all of that condemnation has been bottled up and poured directly onto the life of Jesus. So that, now hear this, there is no condemnation left for you. God doesn't have it in his heart to have any more condemnation left over any of your sin. Now here's what's so shocking about that. God knows all of your past. God knows your sin right now in the room in this moment. And God knows the sin that you're going to commit in a year from now that's absolutely going to ruin everything and shock you. He knows all of that and he's looking at you in Romans 8, 1 and saying, even in light of all of that, there is now no condemnation left for you. None remains. I do not have it in my heart to put one ounce of condemnation on you. It has been drained and sucked dry by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now think about what Romans 8 is wanting us to feel and, and see here. See, the goal Paul has in Romans 8.1 is not just that you would know that, but that you would feel that in the deepest places of your soul, especially when you sin in shocking and surprising ways. That is what Paul is after in Romans 8.1. He actually wants you to be able to enjoy the smile of God even, even when you're sinning in ways that shock you. God is saying, he is announcing, there is no more condemnation. Not because your behavior is so Christian, but because your Savior is Christ. That's the reason there's no more condemnation. So, and if that's true, you can't behave your way into no condemnation and you can't behave your way out of no condemnation. All you can do is throw your life on Jesus where there is no condemnation left for any of us. If you want it in an in a analogy, here's the analogy. It's as if God comes to you and gives you a credit card called justification. All of your sin gets transferred to Jesus. All of Jesus' perfect record of righteousness gets transferred to you. He gives you the credit card. And, and that credit card is connected to an account that is unlimited. There is no limits on the account. So that every time you sin, all you have to do is swipe the credit card and all of your sin is then transferred to Jesus. Now hear me, not just for your little sins in your life, that you can still kind of feel okay about your life after you commit them. I'm talking about the sins that take your breath away. God is saying the account is limitless. When you swipe the card, it pulls another deposit from the good work of Jesus for you and cancels your debt yet again. There is no condemnation left for you. Now, let me just test you when it comes to how you deal with your own sin to see if you really believe this. Do you really believe there is no condemnation left for you? Here's one test. Can you be honest about your sin? Can you be honest about it? Can you confess your sin? Do you always have to present strength or can you actually embrace your witness around other people and talk about your sin? 
And, and I'm not saying that kind of pointing a finger at you. I, when I say that, I mean, I, this has been so much of my life has been wrapped around not believing Romans 8.1 and therefore believing I can achieve that sort of sense of being okay by my good behavior. And it has made it so hard for me to embrace weakness in my life. I'm still like a recovering addict to approval, just working my way forward. But if we cannot admit sin in our life, if, if we cannot embrace weakness, it is showing us that we really don't believe Romans 8.1. We really think it's still up to us. Maybe you could think about, about it this way when you're talking about being honest with your sin. If you can't receive correction from other people, it is showing you you don't believe that there's no condemnation in, in Christ. If anytime someone corrects you, you feel like they have just aimed a bazooka at you and they're trying to kill you, if that's how you feel deep down. See, I mean, part of what not believing um, Romans 8.1 does to us is it makes us insecure people. It makes it where we're, we're always so worried about what is that person thinking? What is that person thinking? Oh my gosh, are they, gonna, are they gonna see the real me? I mean, it makes us radically insecure. When we believe Romans 8.1, it makes us stable people. Test one, can, can you be honest about your sin? Here's another test to you. Do you really believe Romans 8.1 in light of you sinning in shocking ways? When you sin, does it create despair in you? I mean, think about the last time you sinned in a way that you're like, man, I don't want anyone to know about that. I don't want anyone to see that. Does it create despair in you where you're, you get on the cliff and you're ready to jump because of the sin that you just committed? Does it produce those sort of feelings in you? I heard a guy illustrate this with the movie Heaven. It came out in the early 2000s. A lady named Kate Blanchett is the kind of the leading actor. She plays this woman who is watching this drug dealer guy just ruin life after life. And the police is doing nothing about it. She's trying to raise awareness. This is happening. The police aren't doing anything. So she just kind of takes law into her own hands and plants a bomb where she thinks it's going to kill this drug dealer guy. I mean, she's going for it. And so she plants this bomb. The bomb goes off. They bring her in. The police bring her in and they alert her, her to this reality. It didn't kill the drug dealer. It killed four innocent people, some of which were, were children. When she heard that, I mean, it was just like this beautiful moment of acting. She, I mean, you could literally just see the despair come across her face. And in that moment of, of coming to grips with her sin, you know, in this moment, she literally collapses in this office. Her sin took her to such a point of despair that she collapses to the point where she goes all the way into hell, literally with her sin. Now, isn't it interesting to, to compare that response to sin to Paul's response to sin? See, Paul has sinned in equally terrible ways. Just read, you know, Acts 7, 8, and 9. He is sinning in some big time shocking sort of ways. That's Paul. But isn't it interesting that his sin doesn't drag him all the way into hell with it? That Paul can actually look at his sin, that is terrible sin. And he's got some buoyancy in him because he is soaked in the promises of the gospel. And he can look at the terrible, just the horror of his sin and still say in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, can you look at your sin and say that about it? Can you look at it and still say, not despairing, but say, there is right now in the middle of this whore, there is no condemnation from God for me. I love what Brian Chapel in his um, book, kind of through Romans 8, he says spiritual health. Now listen to this. He says spiritual health never comes, or, you know, never comes from belittling sin, minimizing sin in our life. Spiritual health comes from a willingness, and I love this phrase. It comes from a willingness to bathe sin's filthy entirety in the compassion of God. That, that is what it means to be a spiritually healthy Christian. That you can take all of your sin, even the shocking stuff of it, and bathe it in its filthy entirety into the compassion of God. Now, can you do that with your sin? Does your sin work that way? Now, let me finish by point number two. This is gonna be very brief, the people. So if the promise is no condemnation, who are the people this promise applies to? Paul is very clear. There is therefore no condemnation for who? Those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is making this point, that there's nothing more eternally important than being in Christ and nothing more eternally ruining than being outside of Christ. And he is clearly saying, there is an in and an out to no condemnation. 
We do not naturally get into the circle. That's not where we start this life. We start with condemnation, the law exposing, provoking, condemning us in our sin. But there is a line that we can cross to get into no condemnation. And, And he's clarifying that line is you being in Christ. Now, in Christ is a potent phrase in the New Testament. In Christ is Paul's way of saying in faith, that you would throw your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that you would turn from your sin, that you would turn from all of your vain attempts of law-keeping, all of these ways that you try to prove yourself, and I try to prove myself, how good of a person I am because I do this and that and that, how I try to prove myself to God. He's saying, we turn from all of those things And we throw our life on the perfect record of Jesus. We stop banking on all of that and we begin banking on Jesus in faith that his life, his perfect law keeping is gonna be the way that we we receive righteousness from God. He's saying that is how we get no condemnation. That is where it comes from. And then he says in verse two, I love what he says here. The law of the spirit of life, that's his way of summarizing the gospel. The good news of Jesus, he is saying, has set me free. It set me free, he says, from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 2 is the only place in um, Romans 8 where Paul uses the personal sort of pronoun, me. It has set me free. And it's as if at the end of verse 2, he is dragging all of us toward a personal collision with the good news of Jesus. And he's asking this question, can you fill in your name into the blank that the law of the spirit of life has set, fill in your name. Rodney Hobbs, it set me free from the law of sin and death. Can you say that about your life? Can you say that it has set you free, that you're no longer under condemnation, but because you are now in Christ, responding to God in faith, that you're now in Christ, there is no condemnation in your life. And here's the great news of the gospel. If you want that today, Romans 8 is an open invitation from the Lord. Come and get it. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.